you will join me this morning in Galatians chapter 4 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. We begin chapter 4 this morning. We will be looking at verses 1 through 7. The title of our sermon is Heirs of God, and our key words for our worshipers in training are heir, child, and adoption. Now, when I was in high school, several days a week after I had soccer practice, I would go to my dad's office and I would do homework before we rode home together in the evening after he finished his work. Now, at the time, my father was the CEO of his company and had several dozen people in his office who worked for him in various capacities. And one of his female employees told me one time, your father used to be a very scary man to me when I first started working here. He looks like, she said this, he looks like he is in the mafia. My father, if you've seen him, some of you have met him, he's a large man. He has that dark Italian skin and those big bushy eyebrows. And on top of that, he was the head honcho at his workplace. So I could certainly understand if people thought that he was the godfather from time to time. But I would go to his office, and there would be people outside of his door waiting to speak with him, and they would address him with the utmost respect, take immediate action when he asked them to do something. I could tell Everyone around that place thought about my dad in a very different way than I did. While they lined up outside his door and waited until he called them in, I walked right in and took a seat. They might have a bit of tremble in their voice as they explained something to him. While I had no reservations whatsoever about piping up and sharing my opinion about whatever had gone on that day. The employees all had a healthy reverence for my father's position. They respected him for who he was and what he was doing as their CEO, but none of them had the kind of access and privilege that I had as his son. I can remember at times thinking, why are you people so intimidated? It's just my dad. And many of them had told me just how much they loved him as their boss and how much they respected him as a man. I could see that. I could could sense that. But I never really understood what all of the fuss was about because I had a very different relationship with him than any of them ever would. It also reminds me that very recently I watched a, a documentary It's called Logic on Fire. It's about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a very influential preacher at Westminster Chapel in London in the 1900s through uh, World War II and beyond. God did amazing works in the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones and through his ministry. He'd become a man of great renown. He's one of my heroes of the faith, and I've read more and grown more as a Christian and as a pastor, and he has had more and more influence on my life and preaching ministry through the years. But there was an interview in the documentary with one of Lloyd-Jones's granddaughters. It was one of my favorite parts of all of it, and she said something like, he was just our grandfather. We never thought of him any different than that. And then they showed some wonderful photos of his grandchildren in his lap. He, he 
ta- they talked about him reading to the kids and playing with them all of the time. His, grand- his grandson commented how he used to sit on Lloyd Jones's lap and they would watch uh, wrestling. Uh, professional wrestling, and Lloyd-Jones thought it was funny, and he had these big belly laughs as he laughed, and his grandson said, all I remember about that is I used to bounce around as my grandfather laughed. And I think about that, but then I read his writings, and I, I listen to his preaching as he takes me by the hand and leads me to the throne of grace, and I'm just amazed, and I simply cannot imagine what it would be like having a relationship with him like his grandchildren did, because I wasn't one of them. I didn't have that kind of privilege. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be the child of someone who's highly respected or in a position of great power or authority? What would it be like if your father was the president of the United States? What would it be like to grow up in the White House and play in rooms and look at historical paintings and artifacts on display all throughout that place that a very small percentage of the people in the world will ever have access to? In our our text this morning, the Apostle Paul begins to press in a bit more on the Galatians. He's challenging them to have a right understanding of their relationship with God as children. He brings us to the great doctrine of adoption, an issue that only Paul addresses in the Bible. And this morning, I hope we get a sense of what it's like to have a kind of access, a a special privilege that only belongs to children. But it's not with a king, it's not with a president, it's not with a great preacher or CEO of a powerful company. All of those things are far too small. We're talking about the access that a child has to the creator and sustainer of all things. The eternal three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As sons and daughters of God, we have been adopted into the family of God. We have access to him in a way that no others can claim. So as we look this morning in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, I hope that we get a sense of this access, of this privilege that we have that no others can claim. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible in the seat back, you can find the text this morning on page 974. Now, remember, Paul is continuing his argument. He's pleading with the Galatians to understand the gospel, to understand the gospel's relationship to the law, and its opposition to the false teaching of the Judaizers. So we seem to to come across a lot of arguments in Galatians that really seem to be, in a lot of ways, the same thing. And, And they really are. Paul is looking at this from multiple angles. And if you think about it, if you want to inspect something in your hand, you look at it and then you turn it over and you look at it from another side and you'll look at the bottom and the top. That's what Paul is doing with some of these themes. He's taking different approaches to look at the same thing. The angles are different, but the conclusion is the same. 
The first thing I want us to see this morning is in verses 1 through 3. Paul teaches us that all heirs by right will be heirs in fact. And I'll explain what that means. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now thus far, in Paul's letter, he has covered a lot of ground. In fact, throughout chapter 3, he basically covered 2,000 years of redemptive history. And he dealt with the three most important people throughout that time, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus Christ. Now, the promise of salvation, he taught us, was given to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then, 430 years later, God gave the law to the Israelites through angels and Moses, Now remember, Paul explained very clearly by this point that the law given to Moses was never intended as a means of salvation. The Mosaic law did not nullify the promises given in the Abrahamic covenant, but it actually made them all the more urgent because of what the law does, of what the law did, pushing us constantly to see our need for redemption. And it comes through the promise that was given previously. So John Stott comments on this saying, everyone whom the law drives to Christ inherits the promise which God made to Abraham. So remember, at the end of chapter 3, Paul has made very clear that redeemed Jews and Gentiles are one in Jesus Christ. We are part of the same family. There is no distinction. And so he has conclusively demonstrated that all sinners who exercise God-given faith to believe and to trust in the work of God's Son are clothed in his righteousness and therefore are the true descendants of Abraham. And so we are heirs according to promise. And so we've looked almost ad nauseum. You probably think, are we going to continue to hear this week after week This idea that the life and work of Jesus Christ tore down this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. He's offered salvation to all sinners solely on the basis of repentance and faith. And so now here in verses 1 through 3, Paul envisions a situation of a young man's passage from childhood into adulthood and the way the family was ordered and operated in first century Palestine. Now, during the time of his being a child, a boy doesn't have the capacity to manage all that he is heir of and will come in the future. For example, a young boy will inherit an estate, but he doesn't have the proper capacity to understand what that requires or how to manage it and how all of that works. So 
what would happen is that he would remain under the order of guardians and managers until his preparation is completed and it is determined by his father that he is ready. And Paul tells us in this way, he is like a slave in that he's receiving orders instead of giving orders, even though that everyone knows that he is the rightful owner of everything and will one day be in charge. That's what he says in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, though he is the owner of everything. So by this, we can say that the young man is an heir by right. He is the rightful owner of all these things. So he's an heir by right, but he is not yet an heir in fact at that point in time. So until that time, who he is and what he has is really no different than the slaves of his father. So just as slaves labored under a management, a hierarchical management system, the heir uh, in his childhood lived, worked, and studied under a system of hierarchy. So externally, for anyone who would look at this, they would see very little difference at all between a son and the father's slaves. We see that in verses 1 and 2. That's what Paul is explaining. But then in verse 3, Paul applies this illustration, and he moves from being one who is under the law to one who is under grace. So when you think of Jews and Gentiles in the first century, those who came to faith in Christ came down very different paths, right? In many ways, the way they got there was very different. But really, in the end, they were all heirs to that which was very much the same. So Paul points out the practice of inheritance rights to remind the Galatians that those who belong to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, were designated as, what he says at the end of chapter 3 in verse 29, heirs according to promise. And Paul teaches this through several of his letters, the idea that all true descendants of Abraham, and remember again verse 29 of chapter 3, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So if you're a Christian, you are a descendant of Abraham. All true descendants of Abraham were chosen in Christ and they were given over to adoption as sons before the foundation of of the world. That's the language of Ephesians chapter 1. So now, when God the Father covenanted with God the Son, Jesus Christ, in what we call the covenant of redemption, he promised him a people that would be his own possession. And he did this before the ages began. So let me clean this up for us, and hopefully it'll be more clear. All true believers, past, present, and future, are heirs by right. And that was settled before the foundations of the world when the Father covenanted with the Son. However, no one is an heir in fact 
until they repent of their sin and believe on Christ, putting all faith and trust in him alone. So hopefully you see the distinction. One can be an heir by right, but have not yet inherited all that they are given. In fact, that happens at a different moment in time when the Father determines it is time. So here's Paul's application in all of this. For one who is not in Christ, they remain under the law. That person relates to God solely on the basis of works, right? Remember the covenant of works. In other words, the one who is not in Christ is held responsible for the keeping of the whole law in perfection. And in this way, Paul is saying we are like children under guardians and managers. So for the Jewish people, we looked the last two weeks at at the things of the ceremonial law being temporary. They were designed to keep heirs by right in a state of obedience until they reached maturity and became heirs in fact. And for the Gentiles, they lived under the rule of various pagan religions. The lives of Jews and Gentiles looked very different on the outside. But Paul tells us that what they shared in common is that they, he says this in verse 3, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul doesn't really clarify exactly what he means by this or why he said it in that way. A lot of scholars come to different conclusions about this. Some ways we're trying to get into the mind of Paul and figure out all of this. But I believe Paul is most likely referring to a basic elemental aspect of all human religions that promote and rely on a form of works and for their salvation instead of relying upon the works of another on our behalf. In other words, while the Jews had a distinct advantage because they were given the scriptures that told of Christ, they were given the ceremonial law that pointed to Christ, They were given directly the promise of God. In the end, if they were relying upon their works for salvation, their end was very much the same as the pagan Gentiles. Now, if you think about that for a minute, what Paul is saying is shocking to the Jewish ears. He's comparing their adherence to the law as a means of salvation to the worship of pagan Gentiles and saying, there's no difference. You're all trying to earn it on your own, and so in the end, you remain under the law. You have not inherited the promise as an heir, in fact, because you want to remain under these elementary principles. So these principles are religious teachings emphasizing rules and regulations. One commentator writes, people, both Jew and Gentiles, each in their own way, attempted by their own efforts and in accordance with the promptings of their own fleshly, ungenerate nature to achieve salvation. So, These are the things of all human religion. Jewish religion and Gentile religion, ancient or modern, 
that inevitably involve the idea of achieving divine acceptance by one's own efforts. So what Paul is doing here is addressing the mindset of unredeemed Jews and Gentile who look at their works as a means of being made right with their God or God's. He seems to be describing the tendency of Jews and Gentiles alike to think that their deity, whoever that may be, can be appeased by their acts of worship and devotion and sacrifice. Now, what Paul is not doing is saying that the law of God itself is the same as what's going on with the Gentiles. He's saying that their perversion and wrong use of the law of God can be coupled with that of what the Gentiles are doing. And it's the same thing. Surely all of this is sounding very familiar. We're looking at it from a different angle that he has pointed out time and time and time again about one's wrong use of the law that they might seek to attain salvation by it. And so he is saying both Jew and Gentile are held in bondage until under futile, deceptive religious belief systems, both of them keeping their own form of godliness apart from Christ, therefore never inheriting the promise. And so the implication still remains. Those who are chosen by God as heirs by right will be saved, even though there is a time in their lives when they will not be heirs in fact. They are children who are, as of yet, no different than those who are slaves. And as such, they are temporarily bound by the elementary principles of the world, but ultimately destined to receive the full rights and privileges and responsibilities of sons on a date set by the Father. And brothers and sisters, this should give us tremendous joy. This should overwhelm our hearts with gladness as we consider the fact that God knew you and determined to make you an heir to inherit all that is from him for his children. Not before you were saved, not before you were born, not after Christ died on the cross, not after the fall of mankind, but before the foundations of the world. Before he created a single atom of existence, he determined that you would be his. And friends, there are some of you here this morning who live a life of enslavement to the elementary principles of the world. Because truth be told, even if you claim to not have any religious ideas or practices whatsoever, You are still walking as a man or a woman who is enslaved and bound to sin. You cannot not sin. And as a result, you live as a slave to your sin. You're frustrated, you're angry, you're depressed, you're anxious because you feel the weight of God's law on your life. It's bearing down on your heart day by day. And the only way you respond to it is to suppress it in unrighteousness. Even though you know without a fact, without a, without a doubt, that it is in fact your responsibility to uphold this. 
I want to call you this morning to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ. And if you do this, if you turn to Christ, you will inherit all the great blessings and riches that God has prepared beforehand for his children that we might live everlastingly in him. And everyone in this room who is a Christian can talk about how they were once perhaps an heir by right, and we know that they were, but they were not yet an heir in fact. In other words, they lived a life enslaved to all the principles of the world. We all have different stories, and it was all in sorts of, all sorts of different ways, but all of us lived lives enslaved to the ways of the world. We loved all that the world provided for us, and we partook of it in ways that for many of us, would make the whole room blush. We loved it. We were into it. We wanted all of it. And in that, we didn't even realize that we were heirs by right until God saved us and we became heirs in fact. Well, how can that be so? How can it be that God would do what he has done to make us his children? Paul teaches us this in our second point this morning. That Christians become sons and heirs of God through adoption because of the sacrifice and obedience of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 together. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So now Paul has changed his illustration a bit. He moves from the idea of the heir's inheritance to now talk about adoption as the means that God undertook in securing our standing as sons of God. He writes again, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So Jesus' coming was not just at exactly the right time, but it was according to plan, according to God's plan. The coming of Christ was not a chance matter, nor was was, was it something entered into suddenly or by impulse. Redemption had been planned from eternity, and in determining the end from the beginning, God chose just the right time for the incarnation of the Son of God. It was not too early, it was not too late, and in terms of human history, there was no greater time. In a fascinating book called The Life and Teaching of Jesus Christ, the author writes, if Christ had come a century earlier, His gospel would have been blocked at every turn, blocked on the land by closed national frontiers, blocked on the ocean by the pirates who made the high seas impossible. Or if he had come a few centuries earlier, he would have found civilization too preoccupied with its terrible struggles against the barbarian hordes from the north to have any ear for the gospel. But Christ came to a generation when the Roman peace held the world held it no doubt with an iron hand, but held it sure and far-flung and unbroken. And men could hear the Bethlehem angels sing. 
In addition, you think all the Jews that had scattered from Jerusalem, they're called the Diaspora, just following the Maccabean Wars that resulted in the establishment of, of synagogues all throughout the Mediterranean world. And those became the initial preaching points for early Christian missionaries. It was the source of early converts, especially the Gentiles. A hundred or so years before, if this had happened, if Christ came earlier, that would not have yet taken place. A hundred years later, the, the Jews would have lost their protected status as an approved religion, and their contacts with the synagogues would have been nearly impossible. And so in sum, when Jesus came, it was the perfect time for Jesus to come. Greek language and culture, Roman peace and roads, Jewish synagogues, and a pervasive religious dissatisfaction signaled that the time was right for Jesus. In the fullness of time, it was an hour foreordained by the divine wisdom of God to send forth his son, Jesus, who came at the exact right moment. And for what reason did he come? Paul tells us in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's two things here we have to understand, redemption and adoption. Sometimes we think of them in conjunction with one another, but they are two separate ideas. Redemption is the practice of one being purchased out of slavery. Remember last week we, we talked about being set free from slavery to become sons of God. A price had to be paid, and that price was paid at the cross. And the result for all who believe is freedom from sin and death. We are set free from that bondage. That's redemption. Christ has purchased us out from it. And that is our only hope in appeasing the wrath of God. So to put Paul's analogies together, Jesus died at the right time in order that heirs by right could become heirs in fact, and Jesus did what we cannot do for ourselves because left to ourselves, all we can do is follow a legalistic pagan practice. And as our substitute, Jesus gave us credit for his righteous life and absorbed all of God's wrath against our sin. And when God raised Christ from the dead... He proclaimed his satisfaction with the work of his son, thus guaranteeing our sonship. Now, a person may place someone in his will for a number of reasons. He may be an heir naturally by birthright. He may be an heir by adoption. He may be an heir by some special relationship with that person. His inheritance might have then a particular degree of certainty, but there is no guarantee, even if you are a natural-born heir, that he would not be disinherited at some point for some reason. In the first century, one could obtain the inheritance by being a natural-born heir or by becoming an adopted heir. But there was one major difference. While a natural-born heir 
could be disinherited, and oftentimes they were. An adopted heir could not be disinherited. So this legal concept of this irrevocable inheritance for an adopted heir is really underlying what Paul is saying about adoption. So he's talked about what it's like to be an heir, that you have an inheritance awaiting you. And then he comes and he says, you were redeemed, you were purchased out of slavery, and you were given freedom. And now you've been adopted into the family of God. And so in the Greek mind, because of the culture, they're going to tie this idea of adoption to their inheritance as heirs. And they realize from that, it is irrevocable. If I'm an adopted heir, it cannot be taken away from me. It is mine, and it is mine forever. So Paul is not only uh, dealing with the reality that we've been brought into God's family. He's dealing with the fact that we are heirs in fact, and our inheritance cannot be annulled. Now Paul's reference to Roman practice is, um, is also why Paul speaks of us being adopted sons in verse 5. In Roman culture, it was the son who was the heir. But we have to remember the end of chapter 3. Paul's not excluding women from the inheritance because of what he said previously. Remember, he said there is no male or female. We all have equal standing with respect to the inheritance. We are one in Jesus Christ. So the very fact that Paul applies the concept of the adopted son to women demonstrates that men and women share equally in what has been purchased for us and given to us in Christ Jesus. And so... The desired result of God sending Jesus into the world to accomplish all that he has accomplished is that we might receive the full rights and privileges as sons. The phrase adoption as sons that Paul uses here in the, is a, it's a single word in the Greek. It literally means so that we might receive the sonness we might receive the sonness of this relationship. Sometimes it's been translated so that we might receive sonship. In the first century, this giving of the sonship was when a wealthy person who had no children was getting older. They adopted a son so that they would have an heir to leave everything to. And when the legal papers went through, in that second, when it was all approved the status changed, and that person now became an heir. There's a guy named Francis Lyle. He wrote a book called Slaves, Citizens, Sons, and he says it this way. The profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All his old debts were instantly canceled, and in effect, the adoptee started a new life as a part of his new family. On the one hand, the new father owned all the new offspring's property, controlled his personal relationships, and had the rights of discipline. On the other hand, the father was liable for the actions of the adoptee, and each owned the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. Now, that's a wonderful thing. It's one of the greatest things that the Bible 
teaches us. We tend to miss it. I think as a new Christian, as I was learning about the faith, I think I was probably like most of us. I thought, when I thought of my salvation, I thought of becoming a Christian basically in negative terms. Here's what I mean. I thought of salvation as Jesus died for me so that my sins are forgiven. Now, that's a positive thing, but we're stating it in a negative manner. Christ died so that sins would be forgiven. It's a, a debt being paid. So I thought of myself only as having to have things taken off of me. I'm getting rid of something. I'm getting rid of sin. I had an understanding of this status change, understanding sins are taken off, guilt taken away. But a lot of times I think Christians struggle to understand what Paul's saying here. That is, at the very same moment, there is a different legal transaction taking place. We talk about the transfer that takes place in the great exchange. My sins are placed on Christ's on the cross. That's the negative aspect. The positive aspect is that his righteousness is placed on me. That's one transaction. That's our justification. And it's gloriously beautiful and very important. But that also means that I don't just get a pardon from the judge. That in itself is amazing, by the way. The fact that the judge looks at our rap sheet of sin and we get pardoned. But he doesn't just grant us pardon. He then adopts us as his children, which means I now have his legal status. I'm a son of God, and I'm seen legally then by the judge as his own son. As he sees Jesus, he sees me. I suddenly am accepted, I'm adopted. Remember what I just read to you. The father was liable for the actions of the adoptee. All the debts were canceled. It's not just that I was pardoned by the judge, but I receive a new status from the judge because he adopted me and made me his. I'm secure. My relationship with him is guaranteed. And that is so important and so staggering. It's amazing. Just think of that. You stand before the judge and you plead your case and you have no other thing to say than I am guilty, guilty, guilty as charged. And the judge says, on the basis of what my son has done on your behalf, I declare you not guilty and make you a part of my family as my son. The judge doesn't only declare your innocence, he makes you his very own. Friend, if you're not in Christ, I want you to hear this this morning. Whoever of you will arise from Satan's house where you dwell and leave him and his people and run to the house of God, you will be adopted into the family of heaven. We are told in the scriptures that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. From the moment of regeneration and faith, you are spiritually united with Christ as a part of his body, and you stand before the judge, not to be condemned, but as one he will adopt and call his own. Well, I could say much more. We need to look at our final point this morning from verses 6 and 7. Paul teaches us that the Holy Spirit lives within Christians to provide assurance and hope that we are the sons and daughters of God. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As Christians, we have the privilege of basking in the sunlight of God's superabounding, adopting grace and liberty, guaranteed and granted to us by our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And because we have received adoption, we have the kind of access to God that we previously never knew about. You see, I don't stand outside my father's office to speak to him with uncertainty, but instead I enter with boldness before the throne and I ask him all that's in my heart. I share with him all that's within me. I empty myself before him without fear of being cast aside or being set away because I'm no longer looking at him and calling him judge, but I have the great privilege to look at him and call him Abba. Father, I'm not his enemy, I'm not his employee, I'm not his slave, I am his son. And as his son, I have a relationship with him that nobody else can have with him unless they are his child. Of course nobody in the world understands you. Of course they don't understand what this love is that you have for God. How can they? They don't have the access you have to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and forever shall be. They don't know him. He's your father. You can go to him anytime, any hour. You can plead with him. You can lay your heart before him. You can share your fears and your cares and your desires and he will answer you. Not with judgment, not with harshness, not with strictness, but with love and grace and mercy and compassion. God has not only redeemed us in Christ, he's not only adopted us as his sons, But Paul tells us here he's also given us an assurance of our abiding in him. When someone buys a new house, most often we're not able to pay for the entire amount up front. So we make a down payment. And the purpose of this down payment is for us to secure, uh, for the seller to secure a pledge or a commitment from us. The lenders relying on the probability that if you've invested something in this purpose, you're not likely to just walk away from it. 
So the down payment serves as an assurance that you are going to keep your end of the contract. Well, here Paul reminds us that God has given us a down payment of our inheritance. What is that down payment? He's given us the Holy Spirit. It is a pledge of our adoption. We receive the Holy Spirit because we are sons of God. All of this is similar language to what Paul wrote in Romans 8. We read earlier, Paul says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit is sent to us as a pledge and as a seal. He is the sure sign of our adoption. He bears testimony to our hearts and to our minds that our sins are pardoned, that we are accepted in Christ, that we are children of God, and that we are full heirs with Jesus Christ. And if we have the Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 9, we have Christ. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The Spirit is the pledge to us of our current inheritance and our future perfect and glorious inheritance. You see, in many ways, I get part of my inheritance now, that I am given the opportunity to commune with God, to be with his people, to learn from him, to call him father, to pray before him and enjoy all that he's given me to experience his grace. But yet there still awaits a future glorious inheritance that we cannot even begin to imagine. Brothers and sisters, We have a great inheritance. We have a glorious hope. God redeems us for the purpose of adopting us as his children. Salvation is so much more than a rescue from hell. It's a warm welcome into his family and into and at the table in his home. He embraces us as his own by uniting us with his son, through the gift of the indwelling Spirit. And the Spirit bears witness to this reality of our adoption by crying, Abba, Father. From his residence within our hearts, his presence equips us to bear fruit for God's glory, to appropriate his truth, to approach him in prayer. And now as sons of God, as daughters of God, we no longer bear the guilt of sin before God. We no longer bear a fear of wrath. We no longer tremble under the curse of the law. Instead, we are forgiven and we have freedom from condemnation. We are welcomed into his family and we are led by his spirit. We are heirs in fact. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves, but we are his children. Don't trade that away. It's the greatest thing you've got. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. I pray 
with even greater thankfulness than before that you have made us to be your sons and daughters if indeed we are in Christ Jesus. Father, we are grateful that in your great love for us, you sent your son Jesus to live perfectly under the law that we could not uphold, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to be raised from the dead that we might receive the eternal inheritance that you have promised to us as your children. We thank you, God, that we need not come to you as judge, but as father. That we have an access to you that no one outside of Christ can claim. May we be reminded of that access today. And may we come to you with joy, with boldness, with hearts overflowing with a desire to share our lives with you that you may impart all of your revealed wisdom to us. God, we desire to please you. And we pray that we do so as we reflect upon what you have accomplished for us through your dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we go from here transformed, renewed, encouraged, equipped, and edified for your glory and for our great and abounding joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.